Hey everybody, welcome to this week's episode of The Rambler. I am your host, Mike McDonald. Listen, I got a great show for you, the listener, the listeners, the all the people that are listening to this show today, okay? My guest continues to be Milton Washington. He has an excellent story, and he has many stories, many excellent stories. I left you guys last week on a cliffhanger, all right? Part one. If you didn't listen to part one, I highly recommend you you hold off on this one and you go back and you listen to part one because you're going to want to hear what he has to say. Otherwise, some of this stuff might not make sense. I don't know. Listen, just do it. Just go back there and listen to it. It's it's totally worth your time, I promise. And if you like that one and you like this one, go back and listen to all the old episodes too. They're up there. They're free. They're on iTunes. They're on Google Play. They're on Podbean. The latest episode is always up on SoundCloud, so go ahead and do that, okay? And if you like it that much, you can subscribe. There's a subscribe button on iTunes, and you can listen to every single one of these episodes, okay? Because they're great. They're great interviews. They're great conversations. And I guarantee you'll get something out of each and every one of them, all right? Go back and do that. Do yourself a favor. And if you like the show a lot, then leave a nice review. Leave a nice review on iTunes because the more stars that you give me, click on five. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you to click on five. And then uh, it'll help me get higher up on the charts, okay? So when people are looking for the show, it, they'll, they can do that easily, okay? So, so help me out and help other people who are interested in these topics and stories of adoptees, about their adoption, about their lives, about their experiences, because they deserve to be heard, okay? There's a platform for them to be heard. Listen, unfortunately, last week, you know, I published the episode. This episodes, these episodes go out every single Sunday, okay? That's the schedule. I took a week off for Memorial Day weekend. I need a holiday, too, every now and then. Okay, that's going to happen. I'll try to announce it further in the future. But last week, we published the episode on schedule on Sunday afternoon. And that morning, obviously, uh, a terrible thing happened, which are the horrific attacks in Orlando, I don't want to get political about it. I mean, there's enough politicizing about everything these days, especially in an election year, okay? But I do want to say that my heart, my thoughts go out to everybody in Orlando and anybody who was touched by this terrible tragedy. I I don't know what's happening in this country with all the insanity. There's just a lot of insanity going on. And I I feel very deeply that... We as a country just need to come together and we need to figure this out. To say that this is not a solvable problem is to give up. Don't give up. We can fix this together. And it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do to try to come up with a solution that'll stop these things from happening in the future. Okay? That's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, I mean, I, I put on my Facebook and I put on all kinds of social media the that night you know the tony awards thankfully happened yeah if you listen to the show you know that i'm a theater nerd that i grew up in and around theater that i love theater and i am so happy that the tonys were that sunday night because honestly that is to me the purpose of theater is to make you think is to change you and to make you more empathetic and to really give you a place to explore all these things. And it's such a celebration. The Tonys and theater are such a celebration of life, of humanity, and of everything that is good in the world. Even if there's drama, to acknowledge that drama and to come face to face and come to terms with it. That way you can accept it into your life and move past it. 
and, and try to put it in, into a way that anybody can understand. Um, I put this on my Facebook before I put it on social media. Uh, obviously Hamilton this year has been a huge hit on Broadway. Uh, it's monstrous. It's made its way into the zeitgeist of, uh, the larger theater, um, Hollywood, you know, pop culture and everything. It's, it's amazing. And Lin-Manuel Miranda is an amazingly talented, smart individual and his speech for accepting his awards during the Tony's, his sonnet was just incredible and it had a lot to do. Some of it had to do with the show. So if you're not familiar with the show, a, I recommend you go down the sound, download the soundtrack cause it's incredible. But B it, it is to me quintessentially what theater is supposed to provide, especially in times like these. I'm getting a little emotional about it right now. So I'm going to leave you with uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda accepting his award and uh, going into the sonnet, and then we're going to go into the previously on uh, episode, episode because uh, you know we could do that for for uh, Milt. Then we will seamlessly transition into the continuation of Milton Washington and his story. Does that sound good? Sound good to everybody? All right, enjoy, enjoy. My wife's the reason anything gets done. She nudges me towards promise by degrees. She is a perfect symphony of one. Our son is her most beautiful reprise. We chase the melodies that seem to find us until they're finished songs and start to play. When senseless acts of tragedy remind us that nothing here is promised. Not one day. The show is proof that history remembers. We live through times when hate and fear seem stronger. We rise and fall and light from dying embers. Remembrances that hope and love last longer. And love is 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 love cannot be killed or swept aside. I sing Vanessa's symphony. Eliza tells her story. Now fill the world with music, love, and pride. Thank you so much for this. Previously on The Rambler. All right, so here we are. Up in your place in Harlem. In Harlem, Sugar Hill, baby. So yeah, I've, I've been around. And then from there, boom, went to Chicago, uh, football scholarship, Northwestern, got kicked out and injured. I got a blood clot from my knee to my stomach. And, and the doctors, it, and that happened after the injury. That's when I really found out that I couldn't play football because I couldn't train yeah. because of the clot. Yeah. I remember a massive confrontation between my mother and some um, uh, two other village women. It was about them having me uh -huh. and how basically my mother was bringing shame onto the village. So it's like, you got to get the fuck out the village. They kicked us out. So, yeah, I, I don't know how many times I hear my family, damn, you know, you are your father's son. I'm the most like my father out of all of my brothers. And I really? Got, I got three brothers uh -huh. and I got three sisters. That's a big family. Big family. Are you the only uh, adoptee or no, are there no, others? No, 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 no. Joe... The other kid, uh, two years older than me, uh -huh. my story is the shit. It will help you get a good pair of balls to like fight the demons of your life. I remember when my, my mother and I moved, uh, moved to Bupyong, I remember seeing her physically transform. I started to notice my mother sounding different. She started to sound like the black soldiers because my mother used to tell me that my father was in the States. I wanted to get to the States. So I'm like, I'm going to get to the States. 
And then we get to uh, this orphanage, it, and it was different again. In this orphanage, there's mixed Korean kids like me. My mother goes, uh, Milton, I'm going to be back tomorrow. And then that next day, my mother comes. She hugged me. She said, you know, I love you, and uh, she, you know, stay strong. And that was the last time I saw her. From the passenger side, man, this woman comes out, and she is gorgeous. And But then out of the driver's side, man, the blackest soldier I'd seen. And, you know, he, was he in uniform? He was in uniform. And these two beautiful people come out, mm -hmm. um, and I see them uh, greeted by Father King. Then they call Joseph over. And I see Joseph walk over there. I'm like, whoa, this motherfucker's getting adopted? I ran ahead of them, jumped in their car, and locked all the doors. Gwen Washington turned to her husband and was like, Don, how about if we take them both home? Now, what I didn't know at the time was those two were in the process of adopting Joseph mm -hmm. over a year at that point. Oh, the adoption wow. just went through. Within, a, within the conversation that I was having with my mother, she, you know, I remember these words. She was like, so you know your brother, you know your brother Joseph was abandoned, and I'm like, yeah, I'm thinking to myself, well, we we're both adoptees, so you know, yeah, yeah. At least technically, we're all abandoned, mm -hmm. right? She goes, well, there's more than that about Joseph. And now, get ready for the exciting conclusion of my conversation with Milton Washington, Slicky Boy. So she goes, um. Joseph lived with his biological mother, you know, basically kind of out in the countryside, just like you did. But while they were living out there, she ends up marrying a Korean man. Oh, yeah? So, of course, that guy moves into the house. Mm -hmm. You know, and the thing with, you know, with me, it's like, you know, racism was everywhere. Still is. But I, but, but I had the refuge of my mother in, in our home. Right. You know, um, and it was a hell of a refuge because her love and all that just kind of kind of gave me a little bubble when I was out there for the mm -hmm. most part. But that shit moved in the house with Joseph and his mother. This racism. Um, and then all of a sudden, I remember Joe used to tell me that this Korean dude moved in and how he used to beat him. You know, Joe's like, you know, four or five years old. Just for being black. Just for being black. Right. And, you know, I can imagine, you know, you know, we'll call him, Mr., you know, Mr. Kim and shit. Mr. Kim probably getting fucked up off that mockery every night. Uh, apparently he was around more than, you know, it, it didn't seem like he, had, he was a he was a, it was a typical thing in which, you know, he was the man. He was out working all day and drinking all night type of thing. He was around a lot. And he, and he was around with Joe when his mother wasn't around. Mm. Right. Mm -hmm. So Joe used to tell me, he's like, yeah, he used, he used to beat my ass. And then he and he and he told me this is years ago. He goes, yeah, when my mother discovered that he was doing what he was doing to me, she basically told him to stop. So he stopped beating my ass, but he'd make me uh, stand on my head, my head for hours at a time. You know, I always say, man, I'm like, I ain't a doctor, man, but shit, being standing on your head for hours at a time, it can't be good for you. Yeah, you know what I mean. It can't be good for you. And, you know, Joe said that he used to run away all the time. Mm -hmm. This guy used to come and find him all the time. And, and so the, those memories of Joseph's stories hit me. Um, and my mother is in the coffee shop saying, yeah, your brother was abandoned. So Joseph was in this kind of abusive situation at home. His mother sent out a letter to Joseph's biological father through the army. And when it got to him, 
coincidentally, he was doing another tour in South Korea. Oh, really? Which is, you know, which is kind of the standard thing. A lot of the dudes that have kids, they've done multiple tours there. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, cause I, and, and they got a thing. They have a thing for Korea and Korean women. And, you know, so it's a thing. So that letter gets routed, but eventually gets routed to, to, to Joseph's biological father. But before it did, um, Joseph's mother got kind of desperate. And she told Father King that, you know, I got to get rid of Joe. I'm married to this man. He's abusing the kid. Uh-huh. We, ain't got no, we ain't got any options. Father King comes in and goes, there's a family that's getting ready to go back to the States. And they want to adopt the kid before they go back. Mm-hmm. And they were like living in temporary housing. Now, mind you, this is what my mother told me. So she said that while that letter was getting routed to Joseph's biological father, mm-hmm. this family came in as they were living in temporary housing, get ready to go back to the States and scoop Joe up, adopt, brought him into the family. Adoption goes through. But then being with this family for several weeks, the day before, well, the day of leaving, Joseph wakes up in a house that's empty. They just left him there? The family left him sleeping in the really? house. I don't even know how that shit happens, but this is what my mother told me. So Joseph, obviously traumatized, sure, gets sent back to, the, uh, uh, to his mother. Later on, uh, my mother found out that the reason that this family did it is because they knew right away Joe had too many emotional issues. Mm-hmm. And they couldn't handle it. They couldn't handle it. So instead of bringing him back and manning up, they just abandoned him at the house? That's what I heard. That's what my mother said. So now he's back with his mother, but also back in that abusive situation. Yeah. But that letter then gets routed to his father, who, again, happens to be in South Korea. Mm -hmm. Basically said, it's a real bad situation here. You should come and get your son. And... Something that I think doesn't really happen in our stories very much, you know, father, military, black, whole thing, da da da. Fathers don't usually come back and um, scoop up their kids. Yeah. But I don't know what Joseph's mother said, or you know, who Joseph's father, you know, who who he was as a man. But he was like, "I'm gonna come and get him." Huh. Now, when Joe and I both got adopted, I know that I said I never knew my father. I don't remember Joe ever telling me that uh, he actually lived with his biological father. Mm. I don't remember him doing that. And that's a big piece of information to keep out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but I don't know. It, it may have just been too traumatic. Mm. Um, so Joseph's biological father makes the decision to come pick Joe up, picks him up. Now they're living in either on-base or off-base military housing, uh-huh. whatever that situation was. And Joseph is uh, now living with his father for almost a year. And Joseph's father goes, you know something? I love my son. I'm going to take him back to the States. Hmm. So Joseph's father begins the adoption process on Joseph. All right? You know, and the thing is, man, you know, being mixed Koreans, chances are, you know, if you were born in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you don't have a birth certificate. Mm-hmm. Chances are. Yeah. So adopting, you know, HAPA kids, but, you know, biracial kids, sometimes there could be some administrative issues that just clogs up the wheels. And, you know, you end up having an adoption process that takes six months rather than two weeks. Because, you know, if you got just a little bit of money, boom, Korea's like, 
take these motherfuckers away from us. <laughs> so when Joseph's father decides to take Joseph back to the States, the State Department says, in order to do that, you have to officially adopt your son. Uh-huh. We've got to do this shit by the books. Yep. Um, so Joseph's father begins the process of adopting his son. But there was, like I said, there were some administrative things that got in the way. Uh-huh. It prolonged the process. Um, and his tour ended. But Joseph's father got special permission. Let's just call him Sergeant, Sergeant Jones. Sure. Um, J- Sergeant Jones got special permission from the State Department to say, yep, you know, eventually the adoption is going to go through. You'll be all good. You can take him back now. Oh, really? Under the circumstances. Uh-huh. So Joseph's father, um, Sergeant Jones, goes, all right, take, take him back. They're at Kempo International Airport. They're getting ready to board. Yep. Joseph's, Joseph's father, you know, runs off to the bathroom and never comes back. Just leaves him at the airport? What ends up happening is Joseph's father, Sergeant Jones, snuck on that airplane. Without him. Without him. Took off. Leaves Joe crying. And then that's when Father King comes and Joe started his three-year stint at Father King's at the age of seven. Wow. So three years there. Three years. At the orphanage. So fast forward two years into his stay, going on to the third year. Uh-huh. A van of women come, American women come to the orphanage. They pile out. One of those women is, uh, they're all white women except for one black woman. And that group is the Officers Wives Club of Young Son. Oh, wow. Yeah. And there's only one black woman because there's only one black officer, mm-hmm. Captain Donnell Washington. So while they're, uh, you know, the, the Officers Wives Club, they do a bunch of volunteering stuff all around the country. And some of their volunteering took them to that orphanage because. These Amerasian orphanages are poorly funded and, you know, they're on a shoestring. Yeah. And, you know, orphanages, you know, aren't doing really all that hot and all that well anyway. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and while she was out there, you know, she felt some kind of way about, you know, the way that these kids were, you know, kind of living and being treated. Yeah. Thank God. You know, Gwen Washington just has a hell of a heart. You know, I remember mm-hmm. she was just few months back she was crying to me because she's telling me this story she was in the um uh, the supermarket picking up uh prescription uh prescriptions and um uh there was a, there was a um uh an african guy who was crying because uh one one of the folks said your insurance doesn't cover this medication it's 183 dollars mm. and he's crying because it was some medication for his kid yeah you know and you know when 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 and my mother went into the car she was she, she went into the car with a heavy heart and she saw that guy coming out and she went over there and gave him $183 to go get his medication. Yeah. You know, that's just who and what my mother is. You know, I just, I wish, you know, in this world that, you know, there were billions of people like that. Compassion. Compassionate as fuck. Yeah. So she's telling me that Joseph's father abandoned this kid at the airport. Joe started his three-year stint at Father King's. And then two years into it, that's when she goes out there and sees Joe and brings up the idea, you know, Don, let's adopt one of these kids. Lots of resistance because, you know, as a man, I can understand, you know, hey, Gwen, I'm a captain and we got four fucking kids. We ain't trying to do we five. We need more kids. Yeah, <laughs> you know, we don't need another fucking mouth to feed, you know. But she works on them. Who has the real power in a, in a, in a house? You know what I mean? Especially around these sorts of matters, <laughs> you know. So they decide to adopt Joe. You know, my mother says she's like, he just looked really sad. Mm. And, you know, going back to that compassion, I can see why she did. Because he Joe was probably the saddest looking motherfucker there. Yeah. I wouldn't doubt it. And I've well, seen pictures of other workers. He's standing in the corner and everything. Yeah. Just by I, himself. I know people who were at Father Keen's. Mm-hmm. 
And I've and I, I got pictures of you know, you know, you can be an orphan, but when you're, when you're around a bunch of other kids, you know, you can kind of be just be a kid. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean. It's not like you got to be reminded of the fact that you know you're an orphan. You know, for every existing minute. But yeah. Joe probably was. So they start the adoption process on Joe. It should only take a few weeks, mm-hmm. but it ends up taking an entire year. And the reason was is because he was already being adopted. Yeah, still right, Sergeant Jones. Mm-hmm. He abandoned him. He didn't go in and sign some paper. Back in the states. Yeah, he didn't sign any paperwork to be like, yo, boom, it's over. Mm-hmm. You know, and 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 my, the Washingtons kind of do all the tricks of the trade. Um, probably spend a lot of energy and effort and money, but nothing worked, and it didn't work for an entire year. And into that, at the end of that year, now Joe's three years into the orphanage. They had been adopting him for a year. Captain Don Washington gets a phone call from Father King. Hey, and they stay in touch because Father King was a resourceful motherfucker. He, he knew how to make shit happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times he was fighting for Amerasian rights um, uh, on Capitol Hill. Mm. Um, and, and it was because of his effort that a bill, uh, I want to say back in like 83, um, uh, came up, basically giving priority access to Amerasians to, the Mar- uh, to citizenship. So he goes, you know, they're talking, hey, Don, how you doing? That Don, good, good. So, you know, so yeah, Don, the reason that I'm calling is because it's come to my understanding that you have two new sergeants reporting to you next Monday. Don Watson is like, yeah, Sergeant Anderson, Sergeant Jones. Um, yeah, that Sergeant Jones is our Sergeant Jones, Joseph's father. Get out of here. I think Don Washington probably said something, something to that effect. Fuck out of here. What are you, are you serious? So yeah, boom. Fast forward to Monday. You know, I can imagine, you know, Don Washington's briefing his two new sergeants on the job. And at the end of that briefing, you know, Don Washington's like, you know, uh, uh, Sergeant, Sergeant, Sergeant Anderson, could you give me and Sergeant Jones um, some privacy? Yeah. Go out. So Sergeant Jones, it's come to my understanding that you've fathered a kid here in South Korea. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes, sir. His name is Joseph. So I was told that three years ago, you abandoned him at the airport. Is that right? Yes, sir. So why'd you do it? Mm-hmm. Well, sir, um, he was living in an abusive uh, situation with his family and his mother. Uh, she sent kind of a distressful letter to me saying, pick him up. I picked him up. He lived with me for almost a year. I fell in love with my son. I decided to take him back to the States. Um, but I left him at the airport because I felt that if I did that, um, my wife at home and my three kids who didn't know anything about him, I'd lose them all. Mm. Yeah, me as a dude, I'm like, yeah, I get it. <laughs> what would your father say? So my father said, all right, I understand that. Here, sign this document. That document finalizes the adoption, right? Makes it null and void. Uh-huh. Signs it. Here, sign this document. That document relinquishes your rights to your son because me and my wife are going to adopt him. Wow, he's up front with that. Signature. Yeah. Two weeks later, boom, adoption goes through. Wow. And they decide the following weekend they're going to go scoop Joe up. Mm -hmm. A week and a half before that, that's when my mother dropped me off at the orphanage. Yep. And I saw this motherfucker on the bicycle. (laughs) (laughs) And the rest is history. And the rest is fucking history. 
<laughs> well, does he have an ongoing relationship with Sergeant Jones then? Or it was it like, he worked for me, that was it, this is my kid now? No, it's, it, well, well, you know, I think there was a, you know, professional relationship in which Sergeant Jones continued to report to um, his father. I don't know. I never asked him that question. Hmm. But I got a feeling that um, Don Washington knows where Sergeant Jones is. Yeah. I got a feeling. And, you know, Sergeant Jones, let me see, uh, my father now is 71. Sergeant Jones is probably 61. Hmm. So he's probably alive. Yeah. You know, somewhere, somewhere. But that ain't my that ain't my button to push. Sure. Yeah. You know what I mean? And, you know, I don't need to give any more reasons for Joe to like not like me. and shit. You know <laughs> what I mean? So uh, the Washingtons bring you back to the States, which was your goal. Yeah, I think it was. And you uh, live the military brat life moving around from place to place. Yeah. Was that easy for you or uh, difficult or just another way of life? It was. Um, I think that's that's a good way to put it, man. I think it was another way of life. Well, it, well, the thing is, so I think one of the veins of my story is that uh, it, it's a vein of of like fortune, mm-hmm. right? Fortune, lucky, whatever. Any you know, uh, uh, favored. What what you know, whatever your spiritual orientation is that says this kind of magic hand that's been always with me. Mm-hmm. Except I had never been to school. Now I'm learning English emotionally, academically far behind because I'd never fucking read a thing. Right yeah. Now I got to read some shit in a new language. But like I said, I got adopted into a family with three fucking Northwestern kids and a Stanford MBA. Yeah. Only thing I got to do is I got to listen and talk like their asses and I'm good. Mm-hmm. You know, I, and, and man, if I had a regret, I wish I forced myself to read more. Like they did. I wish. I hate fucking, I, I fucking hate reading. Um, <laughs> they were real like bookish. Oh yeah, yeah. I'm just you, you, uh, those, with those numbers, man. You got they, you sure. got to be bookish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't get any fucking scholarships to go. Mm. You know, they were fully qualified. Yeah. Go, you know, but while they did their thing, number one, I was just really, really just happy to be running around all this shit, right? And having this family, and yeah, you know, and and having a school to go to with his kids around, and you know, mm-hmm. friends and all that, and you know, we had things to do because my family, you know. My parents are just brilliant, like in orchestrating, you know, in, in building a family culture. You know, we hated it back then, man. But shit, oh <laughs> six hundred on Saturdays, the boys get up and they go do that. Uh, they go do that that lawn. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, regimented. Oh yeah, regimented. And you know, you know, not only were we cutting the grass, edging the grass, trimming around every bush, trimming around every tree. <laughs> Um, sweeping up perfectly, raking up, sweeping up perfectly. We're lifting up the fucking bushes to scrape underneath the fucking bushes. We were military like a motherfucker. Captain watches that. If I'm going to adopt some more kids, they're going to do some work. They're going to work, and it's going to be good work. They're going to do some fucking good work. I think that bedrock of work ethic in our family, I wish I worked as hard as my brothers. I'm, 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 I'm not that motherfucker. If I would have, this book would have been done three years ago. Well, it wasn't native to you up till eight years old. Yeah. But, you know, it kind of wasn't native to Joe up until he was 10 years old. But mm-hmm. he's a hardworking motherfucker, man. But I think part of it is me and my me and my culture and my father's culture clash the most. Yeah. Uh, so still? I, yeah, still. Yeah. I love my old man and I know he loves me. But a lot of times we don't like each other, mm. you know. And, and but then but then the ironic thing, we're the most alike. Yeah. But very but significantly different, but the most alike. In terms of what? 
Well, when we walk into the room, like you know when I walk into the room, and you know when he walks into the room. Mm. Um, not only not only is there a presence, but there's an energy that that appeals to most folks. Yeah, you know what I mean. So. If we want to, you, you know, like I walk into a room oftentimes thinking I can have my way up in this motherfucker, right? <laughs> and that's how he had motherfuckers eating on his hand, just in a palm on a regular. So, um, you know, but I don't think I'm as stubborn as he is, but it's understandable. Different generation, you know, he ought to be that. He ought to be that stubborn. Good fathers back then were that stubborn. But thank God he has this beautiful spirit for his wife. Mm-hmm. You know, my mother, uh, because she brings perfect balance. She brings that empathy, that compassion, yeah. um, all that soft stuff that, you know, rounds him off well. So, you know, when, when he does something just egregious in the, the, the asshole departments that he can, you know, he can operate in well, uh, my mother can just come back, come, come in behind him and just smooth things over. You know what I mean? It's a good balance. That balance is, I think, this, the, the reason why we have the kind of family we have. You know, like I said, man, it's like, my sister Dwin, uh, she's the youngest of the family. She's uh, she's an actress. She's a singer, very adept at the art, you know, of those things. Mm-hmm. She just did a thing at the Kennedy Center. She was that close to Rent when she was here in New oh, York. Yeah. yeah, but anyway, uh, yeah, man, you know, we we were we were really really well balanced. I hated to read and and, and, and learn in that way, but my brother Don, we used to play D and D. Dungeons and Dragons? Every fucking weekend. Yeah. And my brother Don was a DM, and he was a bomb-ass <laughs> DM. And motherfuckers used to come over from the neighborhood, a bunch of nerd types, and we'd have fucking D&D marathon from Friday to Saturday, noon, <laughs> 6 o'clock. Wow. My mother's making sandwiches for everybody. <laughs> motherfuckers, you know, eight, eight dudes sitting around a big-ass table like this. In, in their underwear and shit, playing D&D for fucking 16 hours straight. It's a lot of D&D. Yeah, it's a lot of D&D, but I learned a lot of shit, man. I, I remember learning words like melee, like, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Dexterity. And I'm like, huh. you know, I'm like, these are really fucking cool words to know. Yeah. Because you can fucking express some shit with these words. For my kind of learning, being kind of submerged in this really smart culture, even though academically I was deficient and I hated to read, but I could sound good. But that helped you. Yeah, yeah. I think it did. Yeah, absolutely. You know, to this day, numbers-wise, analytically, like formulas and a lot of, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm a fucking idiot when it comes to a lot of that shit. And you put a Rubik's Cube in front of me, I'll smash that motherfucker. And, but every one of my brothers and sisters, boom, slam that shit on the table. You know, all the little puzzles, man. My, my family, we used to, my father used to bring home all these little wooden puzzles, like various 3D kinds. puzzles? 3D, or... just, you know, or, I man, I'll never forget this. My my parents got this book, and this book was about, it was a book about this rabbit that had, I think, hidden a fortune. And now you, you had to go through the book and put the pieces, figure out the riddles to know where this fortune, and there was an actual fortune somewhere. Uh-huh. And how, man, my family, we got together. You know, th- these are kids like, you know, 16 years old down to seven years old, you know, and all in between. And my family was just fucking brilliant at that shit. Like, you know, so I'm just in the, you know, I'm just kind of hanging out in the back and shit with my eyes wide open. Like, yo, this is, these are some smart motherfuckers. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's a smart motherfuckers. But, you know, some of that shit rubs off. Yeah. Yeah. It must have. You know, so to know me, um, if you take a lot of my kind of, you know, big personality out of it, you know, the way that I see life and the way that I can understand things is to know my brothers and sisters and my parents. Mm. 
you know, and not only so not only just on the academic analytical, but also on the emotional. So it's like I feel like I come from a family that's made me like I feel fucking powerful as a person. Mm-hmm. We all got our ways that we're fucked up, you know what I mean? But I think I'm a very lucky motherfucker. <laughs> you know, I feel I feel very well equipped for this life. Yeah. A lot of it's because of the family that I that I got adopted into. Lucky. So when was the first time you uh went back to Korea? I think it was ninety eight. Yeah, I think it was. It was ninety eight. I think I was finishing up. It was my almost my last year at Indiana University. Mm-hmm. I just came back from this internship. I was GE's intern of the year. Oh yeah? Knock that shit out. Nice. Right. I was in this program called the IMLP program, Information Management Leadership Program. They gave me an offer, and it was a bit of some hoopla on that on campus. Sure. Because I was in the business program, and the business program is just, you know, they did, I think they did a pretty good job of uh, highlighting successes. So my parents hit me up and says, hey, uh, you and Don can come over for a Christmas break. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was my first time, man. And I remember, you know, as, you know, touching down, like, they were mm-hmm. over there? They were in Korea? Um, yeah, they were in Korea at the time. Okay. Yeah. They they did some time in uh, in Japan, and then they went to Korea. Uh-huh. Um, and this is right With before. the army still? Yeah. Okay. And this is right before they came back uh, came came back to the States for, for good. I, yeah, I remember, you know, getting ready to touch down, and I'm like, I almost kind of emotionally blanked before mm-hmm. that trip. It was probably pretty overwhelming. Yeah. Um, but... I'm a guy that typically manages stress fairly well. You know, fuck if I if I got to hit the gym, you know, every day this this week, with these two weeks, I'm gonna do it just to get it out. Just to get it out. Yeah. Right? yeah. And if I got to talk to anybody about it, I'm gonna do it because I believe uh, in first and foremost you got to get that shit out. Yeah. Typically, you know, if if I get if there's heightened stress, I'm eating. That's oh, why. Yeah? I, yeah. That's why I got this belly. I'm gonna eat my ass off. I've like uh, uh, went somewhere to get some lunch. Walk around 45 minutes later, see some shit, and be like, yo, I want to have lunch again. <laughs> you know what I mean? Bang, bang. Bang, bang. And, you know, that's like a, you know, five uh, you know, five or six meal day. Yeah. You know? And, you know, these, <laughs> these are regular ass meals. You know, these, these are 3,000 calories and shit. You, you got to I mean? eat big to get big. Yeah, well, sure. <laughs> I, I want to get smaller. But, but anyway, I went. Uh, it was me and my brother Don. He was in Chicago. It was pretty emotional on the touchdown, um, but then when I got there, it just immediately got into, all right, where the fuck is the street food? <laughs> well, there's plenty of that in Korea. Yeah. Like, my favorite thing is, like, when you walk, you know, you, you're walking around, looking, shopping, yeah, and then you run across one of these all little tent cities that's nothing but street food. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I want to take my fucking clothes off and shit. <laughs> Jump on my fucking rollerblades or some shit and just roll up in there with a bag <laughs> saying ho, ho, ho. <laughs> so this is the reverse. You're just like, give me all that. Yeah, all that shit, man. You know, and, and I, I know, I, I think my uh, connection with that street food is, you know, th- those are the tastes that I remember as a kid. Growing you know? up. Yeah, because I, I remember we used to steal a lot of street food. Yeah. Yeah, you know, sure. those, those motherfuckers, those are easy targets. You know, but besides that, you know, I don't really have a deep desire or connection to Korea. To Korea. Yeah. I love the food, but I think that's going to change, you know, once I relearn the language. Mm. Because because I, 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 I still have an affinity for Koreans. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if I'm not able to kind of socially connect over there, mm-hmm. I'm like, it's just another place almost for me. Do you plan on relearning Korean? When I get rich, that that's going to be part of my, someone's going to train. I'm going to hire somebody hire to somebody? like teach me that yeah. shit. You know what I mean? Um, it's going to be done in a way that it revolves around my lifestyle, you know. 
Um, but yeah, I, I definitely want to though. Yeah. And then you plan on, so that's the plan. You're going to learn Korean and then go back. Am I going to live there? I don't know a hundred percent if I'm going to live there. But you um, want to go back. Yeah. Well, yeah, I'll go back. Well, you know, the plan is man, you know, I, I'll, fuck, I'll say it now. Like, you know, um, to some degree, I want to be the face of Samsung. I want to be the face of LG. You know, I want to I want to have a, I want to have a deal with one of those motherfuckers, man. You know, because I, I, I think when this book drops and, and I think it's going to get um, the attention of a whole lot, a lot of Korea, you know, because, you know, shit, we're Koreans, man. We're fucking emotional. Mm-hmm. This is a very this is an emotionally rich story, but it's balanced in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's balanced emotionally. It's a lot of crazy shit going on. I got a chapter called Prison Prison Picante when I was in Cook County Jail in Chicago, you know, for uh, uh, the distribution of uh, marijuana because I got pulled over with two dudes uh, who both had murder warrants. Oh and, shit! Yeah, and those motherfuckers took off and ran, and I stayed in the car. You were in the bag. I didn't want to. Yeah, I didn't want to get. Yeah, I didn't want to get shot. Yep. Because I had a fucking nine millimeter in my head, you know. <laughs> but that chapter is fucking crazy. No kidding. It's, I mean, it's, it sounds crazy. It's fucking crazy. It's called Prison Picante because I got lucky. I'll tell you this. So, so, so first of all, it's like a 10-hour process. It takes about 10 hours to get processed into that bitch. Really? Yeah. That yeah. seems like a long time. It not, not even seems. It is a long time, especially when... It's you're, like all bureaucracy is a lot of waiting. No, it, it's a lot. It's, it's both. It's, but, you know, but the thing is, think about it. You know, when, you, when you're getting somebody out of freedom... Uh-huh. You got to there's a lot of paperwork that goes into that. Yeah. You don't want some, you know, administrative thing and all of a sudden some dude is free. Yeah. yeah. And he ain't supposed to be free because he just killed three motherfuckers. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, well, there's two other guys in the car with you. <laughs> yeah. And I remember at every state, they move you from bullpen to bullpen, bullpen, bullpen as you go through this process. Uh-huh. And every woman at the station re- in charge of capturing, you know, uh, the different information they all looked up to me and it's like, you don't look like you belong here. Yeah, I was intern of the year. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, I'm like, I don't. Can you can you help a brother out? Uh-huh. Is there a back door in this motherfucker? <laughs> you know? So I get processed in, man, and I get assigned to Division Two Dorm A. Uh-huh. What does that mean? I don't know exactly. I know what it wasn't. It wasn't the the division in dorms that made up what, what they call gladiator school. <laughs> that just sounds terrible. So, you know, I don't know if you know, but there's crazy gang culture in Chicago. Yeah, so yeah I've heard. So Gladiator School are, are the dorms, the division in the dorms that young gangbangers in for gangbanging type shit. Um, and there's this kind of massive division. You got the, you know, you got your vice lords and you got your um, gangster disciples on, on the other side. Uh-huh. And those motherfuckers. Yeah, yeah. But these motherfuckers are certain places that you can't keep them separated for too, you know, too long. Yeah. They're going at it and motherfuckers are getting killed left and right. Gladiator school. I wasn't in gladiator school. So, but when, when, where I was, was a deck that still had, you know, the ranking members of the gang running the deck. Huh. Right? And man, I was in the, I was in the line. I got my, got my pants and shirt and toothbrush and all this shit. And in this single line going into this dorm, probably about 80 beds, rectangular room that goes all the way back. This is a big bay. Yeah, it's a big bay. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's, this, it's, yeah, it's a, I guess it's a bay. This is, this is the dorm that you sleep. This yeah. is where you live. Um, and some of the beds don't have uh, mattresses because the dudes that run the, the prevailing gang, they got double bubbles or triple bubbles. Huh. They take your mattresses, put it on their shit. Yep. Um, because if you're opposing gang, you might not get a mattress. Mm-hmm. But opposing gang is not the worst thing to be. 
The guy without a gang? Guy without a gang. What they call Neutron. Man with no nation. So, exactly. So, I know what that feels like. I was born in no nation. <laughs> yep. And, you know, I've been running around the streets of Chicago at this point um, long enough to know. And I'm thinking while I'm in line, I'm like, God damn, dude, can I, can I lie through this? Can I lie about this shit? I'm like, hell no, you can't lie about no, this shit. No. You don't know the fucking secret handshake. You, you don't know the people. You don't know none of that shit. So fuck it. Stand up fucking tall. Tell these motherfuckers you're a neutron. And the two dudes that are checking for uh, people's status are uh, this Puerto Rican dude named Animal. Uh-huh. And this short, stocky black dude, shirt off and shit, named Breed. Breed was the boss. So we go in, and I see the motherfuckers, yeah, yeah, you know, Vice Lords, boom, you over there. Yeah, 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 GD, GD folks, we over here. Uh, you here. Then I'm like, God damn, here I go. All right, motherfucker, what's that? Neutron. Because Animal was a big motherfucker. But he was, and it was part of that, I was still a big motherfucker because I was, just a couple of years ago, I was playing football at Northwestern. Yeah. You know, I'm 232. My legs were fucking tree trunks, and I was still pushing, you know, putting up 405. So I'm like, yeah, Neutron. And motherfucking animals like, yeah, motherfucker, get the fuck in the showers. They had the showers running. That's where all the, they, they sent all the Neutrons. Uh-huh. So as I'm walking over there, Breed goes, yo, my dude, turn around. Yo, man, you a big motherfucker, man. Was you in the joint or something? You know, was you in Joliet? Joliet's the prison near Chicago. I'm like, nah, man. Football at Northwestern. Dude, it's like, football at Northwestern? What the fuck are you doing here? Uh-huh. I'm like, man, you know you know the shit. You know, wrong place, wrong time, whatever. You know the drill. He's like, yo, man, listen. We got wrecked every day. Me and you, my boys, we hit that motherfucker. We're going to hit some steel every day. I'm like, bet. I'll be your personal trainer. Right. <laughs> Basically. So, Breed turns around to the hundred motherfuckers or so that are in there. Uh-huh. You know, some with bed, some without. Yeah. Some vice lords, some gangster disciples, and some neutrons. Turns around and goes, yo, this is my boy Milk, and he's locked. So now I'm locked up in fucking Cook County Jail, no gang affiliation, and I'm sitting with the bosses. <laughs> we got a skill. And and while we're sitting around like this big ass table up in the front, right right underneath where the TV is, this dude named Big Red. Like I dog, I remember this shit like last Saturday. There was there's a dude named Arkansas who's from Florida. I was gonna say, was he from Texas? <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Texas produced these kind of motherfuckers. <laughs> They're cousins. But he was known to break out of jails all the time. And sure enough, while I was there, that motherfucker broke out. Of Cook County Jail? Cook County Jail. Well, he broke broke out of many jails, all the jails that he's been caught locked up in. But Cook County is like pretty, it's a pretty significant of course it prison. Is. Like, yeah, it of has some it history. Of course it is. And he broke out of it. That motherfucker broke out. <laughs> and because they got him like the next day. Yeah. And this motherfucker has a tendency to break out, but always goes to his girlfriend's crib. <laughs> So anyway, while, <laughs> while motherfuckers are sitting around this big ass table, I'm with the bosses telling stories and shit, you know, motherfuckers, you know, about uh, Arkansas. Big Red, this motherfucker is probably six, seven, 350 pounds, works in the kitchen, comes uh-huh. in with a big black garbage bag, dumps probably 60 um, small bags of various chips on the table. Mm-hmm. And while motherfuckers are talking, like everybody knows the drill, people are getting grabbing ba- uh, bags and he puts a big steel uh, bowl in the middle of the table. People start grabbing bags and they just start dumping, dumping it all in, yeah. right? And you know, for the next 10 minutes we're doing that. 
10 minutes later, you know, Big Red comes in with a big ass thing of mayonnaise that he that he took from the kitchen. Boom, dumps it in that thing and starts whipping all that shit up. And I just remember it looked like kind of like pink vomit. <laughs> and then he comes out, dumps another bag, like six or seven bags of like just regular like Lay's chips. Uh-huh. And motherfuckers are talking and dipping the thing on the chips, eating it. Chips on mayo on chips. Mayo on chips. <laughs> And, you know, hey, shit, when in Rome, I'm like, well, shit, this ain't bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And being that we all (laughs) locked up, it ain't bad at all. You got nothing else to do. (laughs) What else you going to do? You know? So where's the picante part? That, I call that the prison picante. That's the prison picante? Yeah. But but obviously that's not, that's not just what the chapter is about. It's about some pretty, pretty deep shit, but uh, it goes on forever. That sounds delicious. It sounds like something I would make in Minnesota. <laughs> or like a family dinner. <laughs> or dessert. With some sausage. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of a lot of meats on a stick. Yeah. It's like, yeah. And a bunch of mayo. Yeah. Well it sounded like it had a can of mayo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was it was a uh it was an interesting experience, man. After ten days in Cook County jail, um, I ended up posting bond. My boy uh Witt his family helped me uh, post bond, and uh, um, I talked. I talked to Whit the other day, and he was like, "Man, I remember when me and my old man came to pick you up. You walked out. You just had a look in your eye, man. You know, yeah. some, some shit changed." And I was just like, "Yeah, I remember coming out. I was just like, man, I got to get the fuck out of Chicago. I'm either gonna die. I'm either gonna go to prison, or fucking lose my mind up in this bitch. So I'm like, I got to get the fuck out of here." Man, I was hustling. I was doing all kinds of shit, man. And yeah. one of my boys, in fact, he's locked up right now. My my ace, <clears throat> my number one was my boy Wayne. Um, and me and this motherfucker used to do crazy shit. Crazy shit. Fuck with the Russians when it comes to the burnout phones. Fuck with the Syrians when it comes to the credit card and the credit card machines. And just shit. Hustle here and there. Boom. Sold some weed. Always getting hit up to sell some blow. But I was like, nah, I'm not really trying to do that. Because I always want to get close to the line, but you know my backup was fuck. If I got to get back into school and I get kicked, I got kicked out twice by this point. I'm like, you know, I need to be able to get back into school. Yeah. So like, I'm kicking it, man. And and when I when I got out of Cook County, uh, you know, my boy Whit was right. Like shit changed. And I remember um, when I got out, I started to like finally do what my old man always told me to do, which is have a plan. Yeah. You know. The thing is, building plan, it, it, it inherently makes you more responsible mm-hmm. because you, you are putting it out there like, this is what the fuck I'm going to do. Now you either got to do it or, you know, go against yourself. Yeah. Let yourself down. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, up to that point, I had issues of committing to any motherfucking thing. Mm. You know, my thing was, I'm going to go play ball and I'm going to go pro. And that was it. That was, the, was that going, was the plan. I was going to be the first Heinz Ward. Yeah, before Heinz Ward. That's why I said the first Heinz Ward. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that motherfucker back then, but you know, yeah. And then, like I said, ACL pop, blood clot pop. Mm. Now it's just time to play. You know, and the thing is, I know how to have a good time. Yeah. It's like you know, fuck. I hate the work. Give me the kind of work that I can just tell motherfuckers what to do, but. You, there is that kind of work, but you got to get rich first. Okay. <laughs> so Cook County was a wake up call for you then. It was a wake up call for me to go, for me to realize 
like I said, I'm either gonna go to prison, yeah, I'm gonna get shot, or I'm gonna fucking lose it. In, you know, and I'm gonna be at the end of the day, it's gonna be a bad situation. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I started to build that plan, man. And 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 you know, I always had you know my biggest fear was to compete in the classroom. That was my biggest fear. Yeah, you know, because the thing is, if you're if you're a person who's used to being strong and powerful in all situations, but then you got that classroom situation and you're not that strong, you kind of don't know how to be. So you're just uncomfortable with that. Clearly, just, just crazy uncomfortable with it. Yeah. You know, because I, I didn't like to compete in, in a form in which I was so weak. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so, you know, but, uh, um, you know, but when I got to college, I just hung around a bunch of motherfuckers that were smart. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I and, and we talked. So I made C's on the exams, but I knew that shit in inside, inside and out. Mm-hmm. And I and I would oftentimes be uh, coaching the, the the Indian motherfuckers, the Chinese motherfuckers, the Korean motherfuckers on the shit conceptually, and they bang out A's because you know they knew how to take tests. Yeah. Um, but kind of going back to Chicago and building that plan, man. So it's like I had this fear of you know competing in the classroom. I'm like, mm-hmm. but fuck, I'm like this. I got to do it. Yeah. I got in touch with my brother Joe. He was living in Indianapolis. Uh, I, he worked at a corrugating company. He's okay. like, I can get you a job here. And sure enough, man, that motherfucker got me a job. So the plan was go down to Indianapolis, go to Indiana University, Purdue University at Indianapolis, IUPUI. Yep. Take my uh, undergrad prerequisites for the undergraduate business program and then transfer down to Indiana. And that's exactly what I did. My first In my first semester, I had a couple of friends in my classes that I would like compete with. I mean, one of my boys, a uh, dude named John Hanna, man, we used to smoke up all the time, study, and then he'd go take the exam, and we'd be going back and forth because I'd get a 98, he'd get a 96. He'd get the 99, i get the 95. You know, we'd compete. In order for me to really do shit, there's got to be an element of competition because yeah. I'm just built like that, man, because ever since I was a kid, I had some shit to prove. And I, mm-hmm. part of my shit was like, I'm better than you, motherfucker. You know what I mean? So that worked. Yeah. So I that's why I always have to kind of put competing elements into the mix. Yeah. Um, some of the things that I want to get done that I haven't done, it's just really difficult to put a competing element, competition mm. element into it. But anyway, went down to IUPUI, came out with a 3.2 GPA, gave me a lot of confidence. Nice, yeah. To go down to, uh, you know, the more rigorous program down uh-huh. in Bloomington. And yeah, sure enough, man, I got down there, you know, uh, the, the plan of hanging out with a bunch of smart kids. So I'd hang out, like I said, man, with the Chinese dudes, you know, that were good at math. And, you know, people, oh, stereotype. Hey, there's a lot of truth in a lot of fucking stereotypes. <laughs> These motherfucking Chinese dudes were good at math. The Indian dudes are good at math and technology. It's just the way it goes. I think people are too fucking sensitive nowadays. And shit. Nobody, everybody hates to be put in a box. You're in some kind of box, goddammit. You're in plenty of boxes. You talk to any market marketing company and shit, they'll tell you you in you in plenty of boxes. Yeah, they got all they make up boxes. They make oh, up yeah. new boxes. Yeah, but you know, but you are like some other motherfuckers in you know certain ways. You know, in terms of behavior, desires, and wants, all that kind of shit. You know, um, but uh, uh, you know, like I'd hang out with the Indian dudes. Uh, and I was cool with most of the football squad. I was cool with a lot of the popular motherfuckers. And like I said, I was in B school in, in Indiana University undergrad. The B school program is the program that everybody knows about. In 99, graduated. Uh, my, I think my GPA was like a 291, which for me is fucking respectable. So I uh, did all right. Um, and then coming out of Indiana, remember I told you I was uh, GE's intern of the year, right? Mm-hmm. So I had this job offer. So now to formalize the offer, me accept everything, filling out paperwork, 
go to the application, says, have you ever been convicted of a crime? Mm-hmm. And I go, yes. Then, no. Did you cross out yes? That's exactly what I did. <laughs> You're like, nope. Yeah. My bad. <laughs> Three weeks later, um, some chick from <clears throat> HR calls me and says, your offer's been rescinded. Oh, no. Yeah. Because they looked into it, and then they saw um, that, no, I'd never been um, convicted of a felony, but I had a misdemeanor on my record. Yeah. That was enough? Boom. Well, the thing is, chance off, I was a white dude. I had an attorney. I probably would have been good, but I was a black dude with no attorney. (laughs) So I'm not good in that situation. It goes a long way. So all of a sudden, the kind of, you know, the superstar, one of the superstars on campus, um, uh, business program, who had a job locked in, high profile, has no job. Mm-hmm. My brother Darren stepped up because uh, um, he's been career Eli Lilly. Um, he's still there. Runs a sales uh, sales organization for the der- new dermatology uh, division. He's like, Milt, stay with me and look for a job. So I stayed with my brother, looked for a job, made a bunch of calls, boom. Ended up getting an interview with Cummins, big diesel engine manufacturer doing Oracle systems implementation stuff. Wow. Um, and I think I think one of the ways that I ended up getting that job was playing up the uh, Six Sigma Greenbelt experience that I had nice. at GE. Yeah. Um, and GE was kind of the, has always kind of been the leader <laughs> within Six Sigma, Six Sigma implementations. So, and I said, you know, eventually I want to, you know, get here and, and you know, become a black belt and, and uh, save this, you know, save our company some money. So I ended up getting the job um, worked at it for about two years, uh, and sure enough, like uh, you know, because one thing I, I do, I, I can kind of politic and kind of network my way into whatever you know, whatever it is I'm going after. Mm-hmm. You know, I knew enough, goddammit, to to kind of maneuver, mm-hmm. and uh, some of the maneuvering was getting Gene Blackwell, the uh, EVP of uh, HR for the company, to be a mentor of mine. You know, I remember about a year in, I was just like, hey. You know, I know I'm I'm awfully green, but it'd be great to have an opportunity to become a black belt. Boom. Gene makes some calls, and all of a sudden, I'm in black belt training. Nice. You know, but I got it. um, Successfully implemented a project, saved a little bit of money, but I still didn't know what the fuck I was doing. (laughs) And I was like, man, I need to be out this bitch fast. And as soon as uh, folks started to get laid off in 2002, economy was dipping a bit. They started to lay folks off. And I went to Gene. I'm like, Gene, it'd be great if I can get laid off and have a package because I want to move to New York. Mm. And she's like, are you sure that's what you want? And I'm like, absolutely. Boom. So at that point, I was living in downtown Indianapolis, right across the street. I lived in a harness factory lofts, great building, had a bar in it. Right outside of my windows, my windows are probably 10-foot windows, um, and I looked right on the, the middle of the steps to the Conseco Fieldhouse where the Pacers play. And I lived like four blocks down the street where the Colts play. Yeah. Lived, you know, downtown. The shit was lovely, man. It was great. So I get laid off and I get, you know, 15 grand for my package. Yeah. And my building's got a bar in it. <laughs> and it's like June. So what, you spent all 15 grand at the bar? Damn. Well, you know, the thing is, because I was, I was, you know. I'm, you know, I'm cool with motherfuckers. I know owners and shit. You know what I mean? So no, I, I, I got to, I, I spent very little money there. Yeah, but yeah. The point was, I was getting fucked up. Uh-huh. And I did drink a lot of my shit up. Okay. But I, I, I just, I, I had a good time. Yeah. So yeah, I get laid off. I kick it, burn up a good chunk of my 15 grand. I was like, I'm moving to New York. 
So I uh, moved to New York and so I couldn't get any outside sales jobs, but I ended up interviewing for uh, a magazine here in New York, uh, a company called GDS International, and it was uh, inside sales. Okay. So I remember I moved to New York June 15, 2002, started work June 17, 2002, and this motherfucker looked like boiler room. You know, you got, <laughs> you got, you know, 20 dudes with headsets and fucking Gucci suits. Yeah. We'd call, uh, we call up motherfuckers like VPs of marketing um, and CEOs of small to medium sized businesses, get them on the phone on their cell phone uh-huh. and pitch them on a fucking magazine for, you know, $30,000 ad. Wow. And out of that, out of selling a $30,000 ad, you got like seven grand in your pocket. You, we got seven grand in our pocket because the magazine didn't fucking exist. After like being at this company for a year, I'm like, like boiler room. I'm like, I'm like, how did how did we how how did I just make thirty grand last week? <laughs> you know, I'm like, so they were buying ads for a magazine that doesn't exist. Man, we knew how we, but we learned how to pitch. Wow. And you know that's and I remember at that job. First of all, they never caught on to this. Say again. The company's never caught on to this. Well, the thing is, man, the the motherfuckers that you pitch, there was a lot of churn. Uh-huh. Because sometimes, you know, you're pitching VPs of marketing, VPs of sales, VPs of... There's churn there. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, but plus there's tons of small to medium-sized businesses. Yeah, yeah. Tons. I remember my first, what was called cold deal. Cold deal is calling a motherfucker on the phone. Yeah. Who you've never spoken to. Right. You pitch them. Whatever time that takes, you close them. You send out a contract. They don't know you. They don't know your company. They don't know whatever the fuck from from a can of paint. And boom, you get a contract back. And my first cold deal, I remember, was um, director of business development, HP Government North America. That's what he was. Like, I'll never forget. HP Computers? For HP, yeah. But he, he, he was a business development director that, you know, with government. Yeah. I was looking in uh, uh, an IT magazine and I had eventually got to someone in Connecticut Uh and I pitched him earlier that day and he was like, Milt, I can't do it. This sounds fucking great, but I can't do it. Let me tell you a guy that can do it. His name is James Fogg. This is his number. Call him here. So I go out to lunch and I come back. When I come back, this was my first pitch back from lunch. Got through to him and Within my pitch, what, what you want to do is when you're pitching advertising like this, you got to close them on timing, uh-huh. positioning in the mag, content. You want to co- close them on budget. When I was closing them on content and, w- and positioning, I'm like, yeah, we're going to have you before IBM, double page spread in the first three pages of the mag, but you're going to be in front of IBM Global Services. And I think you guys ought to be talking about Security and systems integration, um, government know-how, da-da-da. I'm reading his ad. He's like, Milt, that sounds great. <laughs> and I remember I did a deal, cold deal, did a deal with, with him for 45 grand. Double page spread in the mag that wow. didn't exist. <laughs> and when I got off, it was like a 17-minute call. When I got off the phone, put together a contract, sent that shit out, that shit was back by 3 o'clock. <laughs> He put 15 grand in my pocket. Wow. And I remember going, I remember calling my mother that weekend because I just, I had went out and paid like four months of rent, put that shit down. I was living on 33rd and 8th, right across the street from the New Yorker. Yeah. And I was like, ma, I just made fucking 15 grand off of this one deal. 
Listen, in the scope of fucking New York, that ain't no money. But I'm fresh on the scene in New York. Yeah. And I'm selling fucking quote unquote advertising. I'm thinking that guy, he just gave us 45 G's. Mm -hmm. I remember going, there's a lot, there's a lot of money out there and it's easy to get it. Mm -hmm. If you just know how. Yeah. Now that's a crooked way of doing it. <coughs> that's some boiler room stuff right there. It's it's, I, I worked in a boiler room. I'll tell you, man. I'm all about <laughs> it. So do you want to pitch your book a little bit? Well, shit, I guess, I think I've been pitching You've it. You've been book. pitching it. Yeah. But is there basically. anything else you would want to say about the, uh, the memoir? About the memoir, um, well, you know, I, I guess I can tell you kind of what I think what it is. Sure. Um, or, or put it, well, here, what, I'll, I'll tell you how I'm kind of designing the storytelling. Okay. Because I think that's kind of interesting. Let's go um, with that. Because, because it's been kind of the most difficult part of writing the book. Uh -huh. a, lot of, a lot of times when, you, if, when you're writing a memoir, you know, like everyone asks, well, you know, is it cathartic? Is it, you know... I'm like, listen, I, like I said, I've been self-aware since day one. Mm -hmm. When you're in that kind of situation, you become, you learn how to become self-aware quickly to survive. Yeah. Um, so I've processed a lot of the stuff, uh -huh. right? And then, you know, like I said, I'm kind of lucky because I kind of, not only do I have a very lucky and fortunate life, I just got a lot of good stuff, good people around me. I've always, well, I think one of the reasons why I decided to write this book was because, you know, throughout my life, I've had a I've had lots of people to encounter me, experience me, and tell me later how I changed their life. And they'll say there are some themes in in those responses that that feedback to me. And the themes are transparency, mm -hmm. authenticity, and courage in the way I face my demons, right? And my kind of school of thought in that thing, because I think that's the thing that everyone really is that's what they're really saying you give me courage to face my demons yeah a lot of kind of how i've done it is rooted in this notion that listen many of us experience a lot of trauma when we were kids i don't care if you're adopted or not yeah trauma is just a kind of a you know it, it there's a high probability of a kid being traumatized growing up anywhere mm-hmm but one thing in, 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 in addressing that trauma, I think a lot of people are afraid to address that trauma because of kind of the implications of who and what they are now, but also the guilt behind it. Mm. Am I less than of a person? Am I a bad person? Whatever. But the thing that like I, I want to remind motherfuckers is, you were a kid. It wasn't your fucking fault. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it's hard for me to look at anybody's situation and not wonder about the traumas that they've never confronted. Behind that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I guess as a result of kind of my, my footing in that, it's hard for me not to kind of be able to kind of correlate the idea of if more people confronted their uh, traumas and their fears and all that, this world can probably be a better place. I, you know? Yeah, I believe that. For everybody. Yeah. You know, I think that thing that a lot of people call evil is just, it's traumatized people, broken people doing very bad things. Bottling it up. Yeah. Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I, I think if you want to, if the kind of story that is highly transparent, highly emotional, uh, emotionally charged with great balance in that department, but ultimately allows you to see that it's okay you know, forgive yourself, forgive those people around you, 
and keep it moving. If if you want to hear a story like that, yeah, then my my book is going to be a good book for that. And and if that's not your thing, I just got tons. I got crazy stories. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's pretty fucking entertaining. It is, and you'll learn a little something about Japanese occupation, Korean War, U.S. militarism, and 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 race in the U.S. militarism, and you know, some interesting fucking things. Yeah, you know. So to me, the time spent in reading my book and experiencing the stories is going to be time well spent. All right. Well, between that and facing down your demons, I think we've come full circle now. There it is. You feel good? I do, man. I always feel good, though. (laughs) I get that from you. I like that energy. Yeah, I always feel good. All right. Well, I appreciate you coming on the show and sharing many of your stories. Well, I appreciate you having me, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. All right. right, Thanks. All right, that was the exciting conclusion of my interview with uh, Milton Washington. Great guy, right? Great guy. That guy has fantastic stories. Listen, don't mind the potty mouth. (laughs) All of you listeners who uh, did forego the PG-13 borderline R (laughs) rating on this episode. But look, he has an important message, okay? He has important messages. And if you're into this interview, then I hope you go out and get his book, his memoir, Slicky Boy. Once it is available, you can follow Milton online, on Twitter, on Facebook. He has a website you can subscribe to, get email updates from him about the status of his book. Stay on that guy. Stay on him, okay? Because that book's going to be awesome when it comes out. You heard only a few of his stories, of his many (laughs) incredible stories, okay? And if I were to be completely honest, the message that we started and ended on about being honest with yourself, being true to yourself, and facing down your demons is an important one to take home with you, okay? I Honestly, I agree with Milton 100% that if more people did that and didn't bottle it up inside and actually talked about their feelings in an open and honest, transparent, and authentic way, like we talked about on this show, and just admitted our faults, we could deal with them head-on, and we could avoid a lot of the problems that are going on in the world right now, (laughs) okay? Let's just be honest. Anyways, uh, you can always follow me, on Facebook at facebook.com slash the Rambler ADHD and Twitter. I'm on the Twitter sphere at the Rambler ADHD. Uh, you can always DM me or follow me there. I tweet out a bunch of stuff. I am also on the email. You can email me if you like the show or if you want to be a guest on the show or if you know somebody who'd be a great guest on the show. And my email is the Rambler ADHD at gmail.com. And, you know, you can always listen and subscribe on iTunes. I highly recommend that you subscribe so you can hear all the greatest episodes coming out automatically downloaded, downloaded, downloaded to your device, your iDevice. For those of you who don't have an iDevice, I'm also on the Google Play Store. I don't know if you can subscribe there, but I'm on there. And I'm on a bunch of other third-party apps that pull the feed somehow. I don't know how they do it. I'm not that technically proficient. What else? Oh, music today provided by The Bell at Needle Drop Records and a a collective effort from SoundCloud. Go look for them at soundcloud.com and look for a collective effort music, okay? All their stuff is in the show notes as well. I don't have any pop songs for you today. Sorry, guys. The Lin-Manuel thing was enough, I think. Uh, I'm on a first-name basis with him, so I can call him Lin. That's not true. None of that is true. (laughs) But keep listening when uh i have next week's episode my conversation with laura serrano 
good friend of uh, Heather Schultz. Uh, they, I think they went to the beach after the interview. That one's a little bit noisy. We're going to try to work on that, but uh, we did it in a cafe. I don't know if there's much I can do about that. <laughs> Future episodes, though, I, I swear I'm going to get some rehearsal space, so it'll be a little bit quieter in the city anyways. Also, I did want to say happy Father's Day to all you fathers, even if you're a pet father, a father of a pet. Okay? That would be me. Uh, and happy Father's Day to my dad, if you're listening. Thanks for listening, Dad. Uh, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. All right, you guys be good to yourselves and be good to others, okay? You guys have a great week. I'll talk to you next week. See ya. <laughs>